Hello, Utah skiers and riders, and welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. And I want to send a big thanks out to Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys for kicking things off on this episode once again. A shout out to our sponsor, High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home right here in the American West. And when you're in Utah, visit one of High West locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. And a shout out to our episode sponsors, first of all, Level 9 Sports with four locations along the Wasatch Front, including its fabulous newly renovated shop in downtown Salt Lake City. And a really big last chair welcome to new sponsor, Park City Peaks, one of the greatest hotel values in Park City and one of the favorite local hotel bars for locals and visitors alike. If you're a skier or snowboarder, you probably love ski lifts. And hey, who wouldn't? They quickly whisk us up from the bottom to the top to let us enjoy the sport that we crave. But do you love them enough to visit every single one in America? That's right, 2,381 lifts to be exact. Well, that was the life mission of Peter Landsman. And last winter, Peter completed his journey, which took him to nearly 500 resorts around the country. A native of the Pacific Northwest, Landsman made his way up to a dream job of Lyft supervisor. Along the way, he started a small little website at liftblog.com, where he talked about innovations and challenges with ski lifts. And it turns out he hit a good little niche with Liftblog's web and social channels growing and growing over the past years. Today, Peter spends nearly every minute he's not working on lifts traveling to ski resorts across America and now Canada to ride and photograph ski lifts. As you can imagine, he's become one of the new Salt Lake City International Airport's best consumers, transiting frequently from his home in Jackson, Wyoming. We caught up with Peter at the Ski Utah offices in Salt Lake City on a layover on his way up to Quebec. This is a fascinating interview to hear about his own journey, but also to give us an update on what new lifts we can expect this winter here in Utah. Stick around as we chat with Peter Landsman of LiftBlog right here on Ski Utah's Last Chair podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. It is a beautiful October day here in Utah. The leaves are past their peak now. They're starting to fall. And as skiers and snowboarders, we love this time of year because we're just counting it down until the lifts start running in November. So we are going to talk ski lifts today. And we have the resident expert, Peter Landsman. Appreciate you coming by here, Peter, from Lift Blog. He is really the nation's and the continent's voice on ski lifts. And Peter, thanks for coming in and visiting with us at the Ski Utah office. Thanks for having me, Tom. Now, you have probably become one of the most frequent transitors of the Salt Lake City International Airport. I know you're on transit today between your home in Jackson and Wyoming and Montreal, Quebec to look at some more ski lifts, right? That's right. I've finished visiting the lifts in the United States and now I'm working on Canada. So pretty much regardless of where I'm going, Salt Lake is the first stop and the last stop. We're going to talk more about your accomplishment, but folks, if you're just tuning in to Peter and the Lift Blog, Peter and his career has now visited every single ski lift in America, 2,381 by count. We're going to come back to that a little bit, but for those who have been following you, maybe don't know your background, how did you get into the sport of skiing originally? 
Well, like a lot of people, it was initially my my dad, my parents. I grew up in the Seattle area. Started skiing at Snoqualmie Pass, which is about 45 minutes outside of Seattle. And immediately, I loved to ski. I think I was about four years old when I first started. And also very quickly with the skiing, I realized the lifts were also really interesting machines. And I would say ever since then, I've had a interest in both the skiing and the lifts and uh, tried to get to as many ski areas and lifts as I can. How old were you when you first began that infatuation with these lift devices to take us uphill? I would say when I started skiing, when I was four, one of the earlier memories I have of a ski trip was to uh, Sun Valley. And I remember being just like five or six and uh, asking if I could, my parents, if I could stay late and watch them turn off the ski lift and like somehow that would be interesting. And, and I don't know if my parents were, they probably thought it was a kind of a funny thing to ask, but they, they let me stay and watch. And I ended up talking to the lift operators and I still do that kind of thing today. How did you find your, I mean, you're, you, you work at Jackson Hole now in our neighboring state of Wyoming here from Utah. And how did you, how did you end up working in, in lift engineering? So I went to, I went to college in Maine and so I, I visited a bunch of resorts and, and lifts in Maine and New Hampshire. And then I knew all along that I wanted to return to the West after college and, and work in the ski industry. So I told my parents I was just going to go for a winter to a ski resort and work as a lift operator. 11 years later, I'm still there. Was Jackson your first stop? Uh, Jackson was my first choice. I, I graduated from college, spent the summer back home, and then in the fall, I, f- I went to Jackson, interviewed for a job, and got the job, and, and I've been there since. I had some other ski resorts on my list, some of them in Utah, but got a job at the first one I went to. So, and What's your role up there now? I'm a lift supervisor, so I basically hire, train, and supervise lift operators. So we have about 150 employees in the winter and then about 50 in the summertime. And so it's always busy whether we're hiring season or operating season, we always have things going on with lifts. You know, for those of us uh, who are skiers and snowboarders, we love to ride your lifts. You are one of those somewhat invisible employees out there on the mountain that play a really vital role. What are some of the things in your typical day that you would do as a lift supervisor? Well, we get to the mountain very early in the dark. There's basically an army of people that work at ski resorts that are sort of behind the scenes. We work very closely with lift maintenance, ski patrol. There are just so many different people that are at ski resorts early in the morning getting the mountain ready to go. We, we figure out with patrol when they need to go up certain lifts, where they need to go. We communicate with maintenance, figure out what lifts are ready, what lifts maybe are going to take more time to get ready. And then all of that happens before the guests even get in line for the day. A lot of us probably think that you arrive on site, you flip a switch, and the lifts start running, but it's probably not that simple, is it? It's not that simple. And in my role in particular, I'm dealing a lot with the employee side, so not necessarily the guest-facing uh, part of the ski resort, but figuring out which employees are going where, who's best suited to go to which lift that day, and making sure everybody's in place by the time patrol needs to go up and then the guests need to go up the mountain for the day. What are some of the biggest challenges that you face? I mean, are you, you know, is it that really nasty 
big blast and powder day or, or is it ice or what are some of the things that, that really create headaches for you? Well, transportation is a big one. Roads, you know, we rely a lot in Jackson and I know that a lot of the mountains do here too on, on a particular roads to ski resorts and public transportation. A lot of our employees take public transportation to work. So we tend to know when the bus, maybe a bus gets stuck or a bus is late and a lot of that's tied to weather. So, you know, on a big weather day, we try and encourage employees to get to the mountain as early as possible, take the earliest bus they can, because everyone's relying on us to get to the mountain and get the lifts going so that everything else can happen and we can open for the day. What are some of the real upsides to the job? And I know one, I'm going to let you go first, but there's one that I know that's important to me. But if you look at your job right now, what's kind of the thing that really gets you motivated every day? There's an incredible camaraderie working at a ski resort. There are so many different people working together from different departments. Every department at a ski resort is important. Everybody rides lifts, so we're all kind of in it together. And we work really hard every day, every morning to make sure that we open the lifts on time and that the guests have a great experience. So it's it's extremely rewarding. Yeah, I love, I love the team concept. Where I was going to go on it, though, is having worked for the U.S. ski team for a lot of years, there were many mornings where I was able to go up before the public and get up on top of a mountain. And I know that for you, that also has to be a pretty memorable part of your job to be up on top of a mountain when the sun is just coming over that ridge out to the east. Absolutely. The sun rises, the fresh snow, the, the fresh grooming that we get to enjoy, the sun sets at the end of the day. When you're in mountain operations, you're there before the mountain opens and after the mountain closes. It's great when the guests are on the mountain, but it's also really amazing when you just have the mountain to yourselves and your coworkers. Are there times in those early morning hours on a powder day where maybe you can sneak a little run of uh, fresh before you uh, head back to your next stop on your job day? Absolutely. Um, it's definitely part of the job getting to ski fresh powder, and we we make sure we arrange things so that sometimes the the fresh powder is on the way to the next task. That's one of the perks of working at a ski area, folks. So if you're out there listening to the podcast and looking for a job for this winter, this might be a good opportunity for you at one of Utah's resorts. Let, let's get into the crazy quest that you undertook. And I know that you began this infatuation when you were maybe four or five years old. But at what point did it strike you that you wanted to go and see or experience in some way every lift in America? Well, I think it shows the power of, of dividing tasks into, into chunks and taking things one step at a time. I really didn't think I would get to everyone until pretty late on in the, in the quest. I just more looked at, at it in chunks. And so I started in Washington where I grew up. I was like, I can visit every ski area in Washington. And then when I went to college, I, I made an effort to visit every ski area in Maine. And uh, as I went, I just took it, broke it down into chunks. The West, I did Utah, I did Colorado. And then, and then fairly late in the process, I was like, well, there's only so many states with ski areas and there are only so many ski areas and maybe I really can do all of them. And you did. <laughs> Eventually, yeah. It took a lot of time. Now, d during that time, you're still working. You still are working a full-time job. How do you parse out the time to do that? So we work very long days in the ski industry. Where I work, Jackson Hole, we, we tend to work four-day work weeks in mountain operations. So 
and sometimes even three and a half if we work really long days. As an hourly employee, I, I, I could kind of do some trading with other coworkers who really helped me out. And then I could take maybe four or five days during the winter to do a trip to, say, Utah and uh, cross off a bunch of resorts. I did very often do multiple resorts in one day. And I also didn't do them all in the winter. So some of the resorts like in the Midwest that are pretty small, I could just visit in the summertime and hike up and and uh, check out every lift without have, having to actually ride them. At, at, at what point in this process did you start your blog, liftblog.com? That was later. So I, I would say about halfway through. Um, initially, when I started working at Jackson Hole, I was a seasonal employee. And so I would have the off seasons off. So one April after we'd closed for the season, I think it was 2015, I was just kind of sitting around doing some hiking and biking and waiting for the next season to start and uh, had some time off. And I, f- I figured maybe, you know, I visited all these lifts. I've taken pictures of all these lifts, kind of documented the statistics about all these lifts and figured maybe somebody else might be interested in, in reading about them if I put all this information online. When you started LiftBlog, and you also have an accompanying Instagram channel, you're active on Twitter, are you active on Facebook as well? Facebook a little less, but I have accounts on all three. But Instagram is a great spot. If people want to go and learn a little bit more about what you've experienced, they can just go to your LiftBlog handle on Instagram, right? Yeah, and I've learned through this, ski lifts tend not to be in ugly places. So I've taken a lot of nice photos of ski lifts because they tend to be all in amazing places. Well, they really they really are. But at what point in this process were you able to walk into a ski area office and say, hey, I'm Peter Landsman from LiftBlog. I'm here to look at your lifts. And they actually paid attention to you. More recently, I would say I had an, a, a following pretty quickly, but it was in a, a narrow group of people that were also interested in lifts. I would say in the last couple of years, after visiting all of the ski areas, people have realized what I've done and, and gotten to know my name. And and now I would say most ski area operators, people who work in mountain operations have at least heard of my website and and a quest to visit all these lifts. In, in the beginning, was it was it mainly people directly involved in the lift industry who were interested in your in your blog? Exactly. So it was more like the the mountain operations folks, maybe a lift operations manager or a lift mechanic would follow lift blog on social media. And now it's more of a broad section of skiers and snowboarders and marketing folks and people who just are interested in the ski industry. I want to get back to your actual journey here in a bit, but I, I want to digress a, a bit. And one of the things, too, that I've noticed that you've created is you've also started a real consumer following. And th- th- there's, there's two of you out there. You, you're doing Lift Blog and Stuart Winchester doing his uh, Storm Skiing uh, Journal and podcast. The two of you coming from different directions have what inherently one might look at as really a trade or industry approach to how you're reporting on the sport. But you've both captured this huge consumer following. Did you ever think that that you'd get to the point that that average skiers and riders were following you to learn more about the inside operation of their sport? I really didn't. I thought initially I would just get the people who were kind of chairlift nerds, which is a a pretty small group of people. But there are some. There are definitely some, which surprised me in in a way as well. But I think what I've realized through this this journey is that skiers and snowboarders are very passionate 
about the sport. Even skiers and snowboarders who don't work in the ski industry, when they're at their maybe their office job or they're a doctor or wherever they are, they're following what's going on in skiing. They're interested in skiing. They're interested in what's going on at their resort and, and the resorts they like to visit. And I think both Stuart and I have tapped into that. And I think it's going to continue. People are, people are very passionate about skiing. Have you changed your editorial content a little bit? Are you trying to be a little bit more consumer facing? Yeah. And I initially started following more of like the past season pass landscape and, and trying to write more about other projects at ski resorts like snowmaking and, and lodges and, and new expansions, not just lifts. But as you mentioned with Stuart, and there are a lot of other people that are doing a really good job covering the ski industry and what's going on. So I'm just one of many. And I think the more the merrier, uh, the ski industry is, is an exciting thing to cover. And, and I really enjoy it. Let's get back to your adventure. Over about a 22-year span, you went and visited 2,381 lifts. That number is growing at around 480 resorts in the U.S. You've got to have some stories. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the ski industry is incredibly broad. I mean, I have been to uh, ski resorts that a ski resort that's inside. There are ski resorts that are run by schools. There are ski resorts that are run by the U.S. military. There are ski resorts that are run by nonprofits and companies. So they come in all shapes and sizes. It's really remarkable how many different types of lifts and ski resorts I've, I've been to. I'm always fascinated with those stories of kind of the family that has the lift in the backyard or the community that's decided to put a lift in and operates it as a community program for kids. Do you have any examples around the country you could give of these just really teeny tiny installations that you probably never have heard of before, and they're certainly not a part of Epic or Icon? Yeah, one in Vermont comes to mind. There's one called Escutney that used to be actually a, a larger resort on Mount Escutney, and uh, unfortunately it had some financial problems and the lifts actually got removed and sent to other ski resorts. But the community came together a couple years ago and decided they still wanted to have a ski hill. So they, they really bootstrapped it and they built a rope tow and a, a used T-bar on the lower part of the mountain. And it's a nonprofit community ski hill operated only on weekends and when there's, there's fresh snow. Yeah, it's it's just fascinating to hear these stories. And we don't really have quite as many examples of that here in Utah, but scattered around the country, there are really some some amazing, amazing places. I, I know you've done some of these visits in the summer and some in the wintertime, but typically when you go in the winter, do you just go to a ski, do you, do you come into a ski area with an advanced plan? Like, here's going to be my flow around the mountain today? I do. I study the map Usually I have an idea in my head of what the skier is like just from my prior research, but the night before I review the map, figure out what I think is going to be the most efficient and fastest way to, to go up and down every lift. It really varies on the resort how many runs you have to do for each lift to really photograph them properly and ride them and then get between the different lifts. Some mountains are much more spread out than others where you have to ride lifts just to get to other lifts. And some mountains are like three lifts that start in the same spot and you just ride one, two, three, and then, then it's done. So every mountain is different. Every lift is different. And it takes a little bit of a different plan each time. I know you stay on top of this, but 
does it frustrate you a bit when you've been to a ski area the year before and then all of a sudden they start to put in new lifts and replace things and say, oh, I've got to go back? It doesn't frustrate me at all. That makes me very happy to hear every time a ski area announces a new lift. I get excited to hear what they're doing and where it's going and maybe how it's changing from the old lift. And uh, I keep a constant list going of of where I've been and where I need to, to go back to, to ride something new. Do you have a pipeline to the lift manufacturers? I know there aren't that many of them, but do you have an inside connection so you get a sense of what lifts are coming online over the next couple of years? I do have a good sense of what lifts are coming online. It actually mostly comes from the U.S. Forest Service. In Utah and a lot of other places, many resorts are on public land, so they have to go through a permit process through the Forest Service before they can even build the lift. And then a lot of times resorts will tell me that they have an announcement coming up and keep me in the loop. The lift companies, sometimes they can say something, but a lot of times, you know, it's their customer's project. So they're sometimes tied in what they can say about an upcoming project. But ski areas like to talk about what they're planning and and I keep a constant list going on my website of what what's plans for each season in the coming seasons ahead. What are some of the more unusual lifts that you've seen out there as you toured across America? Ooh, there as I said everyone is different, but one that comes to mind is uh, in New Jersey, an actual lift that was built here in Salt Lake City but sent over to uh, New Jersey that's inside in uh, this new indoor ski resort in a shopping mall in New Jersey. It's called Big Snow, and so they have a a quad chairlift that's actually, instead of coming out of the ground and the ski slope, it actually hangs from the ceiling. So as you ride up, the the lift towers are coming down from the roof, and uh, that's a pretty unique lift. And then another one that comes to mind is a single chair up in Alaska. Cordova, Alaska has a uh, single chairlift still operating. It's actually from Sun Valley that got sent up there after they were done with it in Idaho. Do you have any idea how far back that one went at Sun Valley? The 1930s, all the way back. It's one of the original lifts. It's one of the original. I'm not sure if it's the original one. There were a couple built in pretty short succession in Sun Valley, but it's one of the original lifts from Sun Valley still operating at a ski area in the United States, which is pretty remarkable. This is a little bit off track, but I wonder, do you have any sense of why people today are willing to spend so much money to buy old used chairlifts to put to, to, I don't know, hang in their office or their backyard? As we just said a a few minutes ago, skiers are incredibly passionate about about skiing and having a physical piece of, of memorabilia to put in your house or in your yard from your favorite ski area is pretty appealing. And I actually have one myself. I have a chairlift from Mount Baker, Washington. Right now it's in my mom's garage in Seattle because I don't have a very big apartment in Jackson. But someday when I have a place for it, I will uh, display it prominently in my house. Yeah, It's incredible to me to see some of these auctions and sales of old chairlifts. And it is pretty cool. You know, there's just something about it. When you see a chairlift hanging in a bar, you just wonder about all the stories that go with that chair. Well, I give credit too to Mount Baker, Washington. When I bought my chair, it was $35. So I, I think that's a pretty good investment. That was a pretty good investment. You would not get a chairlift for that amount today. Let's kind of broaden things out. I mean, one of the things that's always fascinated me and having traveled particularly to to Europe and seeing how 
Lifts are certainly great for ski areas, but they serve other purposes. They're great for mountain transportation, urban transportation networks. Can you give us some examples of other lift installations that you've seen where maybe skiing and snowboarding wasn't the primary purpose? Yeah, so almost every state in the United States has at least one lift that's at, at a place other than a ski resort. So in Utah, there's actually a chairlift at Lagoon that's just a sightseeing kind of ride. And then you have places where lifts are used for public transportation. So like in Portland, Oregon, there's an aerial tramway that connects office area to a hospital up on a hill, and it goes over I-5, Interstate 5. And it's a chairlift. That one's actually a tramway, it's a tramway. so kind of more like Snowbird's tram. And so they're used for public transportation at amusement parks, state fairs. Let's see what else. There's a few at stadiums. So like the uh, Miami Dolphins down in Florida have a gondola at their stadium that goes between the parking lot and the stadium. So chairlifts and gondolas and tramways are, are very efficient ways to move people not just at ski resorts. Have you spent any time in Europe yet? I have been to Europe on a like tour of the cities just for fun, but I have never skied in Europe. And just last week, I booked a plane ticket to go to Innsbruck, Austria, after we close for the season in April. In ja- so after Jackson closes, I'll go to finally ride some lifts in the Alps. Nice. It, it's just, it is so impressive to see some of the installations and, and there it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a part of life. There's an integration with rail, with tramways, with chairlifts, where you may use those devices to ski, but you might use them to get the groceries. Absolutely. And uh, part of this trip will be, there's a conference of, of lift technology companies in, in Austria. So I'm going to go do a little skiing, check out the latest and greatest European lift technology and hopefully get some, get some good skiing into. Cool. What a great story. We are with Peter Lanceman of lift blog. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about new lifts coming online this season here in Utah. We'll be right back. We'll be back with Peter in just a moment to hear who has installed lifts in Utah this summer. But first, let's talk about gear with a quick visit to longtime last chair sponsor, Level 9 Sports. If you're looking for new equipment, it really pays to visit a shop and talk to the experts when making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or an upgrade to your goggles. You have a lot of choices in shops here in Utah. And what I've grown to really love about Level 9 is its approach to families. Outfitting your crew with skis, boots, jackets, and more, that can be daunting. But Level 9 recognizes that and has implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also to help you with the impact on your wallet. Last season, I paid a visit to the newly renovated Level 9 Sports in downtown Salt Lake City. It's less than a minute off the freeway from the new Salt Lake City International Airport. It's an amazing old historic building in an industrial area going through a remarkable renaissance. If you're flying into Utah and need to rent skis, well, Level 9 is a perfect choice with easy off-and-on access to I-15. It's a huge shop featuring a wide selection of skis and accessories. Visit the website at level9sports.com. That's level9sports, spelled out, 
www.skilearnsocialmedia.com. And check out the Ski Learn Center and Teaching Children sections, a wealth of how-to videos that will walk you through the entire process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations, including Orem, Mill Creek, the new store in downtown Salt Lake City, and up in Ogden. Now let's get back to the Ski Utah office as Peter Landsman of Lift Blog gives us a rundown of the new lifts that we'll see here in Utah this winter. Welcome back. I'm with Peter Landsman from Lift Blog, and we're talking ski lifts today. We love hearing about your adventure, Peter, but let's kind of bring it close to home for those of us here in Utah, those coming out to visit this winter. A lot of new lifts going in in Utah this winter. Any that you want to highlight? Sure. Utah is always a place where there are always new lifts going in every year. Sundance is doing, again this year, they, they added two new lifts last year, and this year they're adding a fixed grip quad in a new area, kind of between the front mountain and the back mountain, there's a nice little pocket with some good intermediate, low intermediate terrain between some trees. And so there'll be a new new quad chair there, new runs, and uh, I'm excited to get back there. Did you get there last year to see the new lifts? I did, yeah. So they had the Outlaw Express, which was a big new improvement. The old raised lift was, was quite the ride there. That was one of the longest lift rides in the United States. And... Uh, Wow, what a change. The, the new lift not only replaced Ray's, but it goes up higher, and that was a, a major, major improvement at Sundance. For, the, for those who didn't get to Sundance last year, it was a real transformation. I mean, it, the, the two things that were done, cutting some new runs so you could get from the back mountain all the way to the base and adding the, the new express lift, and, and just kind of imagining off the top of Jake's where this new lift is going to go, it's going to, again, transform that area even more. Right. And they've not just done lifts. I mean, the new ownership there has done snowmaking. They've regraded some areas where you where you couldn't easily get before. And yeah, exciting things happening at Sundance. Cool. How about at Deer Valley? You know, on its face, the 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 new lift there or the realignment of the, the, the Burns lift might not seem like much, but it's pretty transformational for the beginner experience there. Yes. So the Burns lift is actually going to be one of the shortest high-speed lifts in the country. But it's it's creating a really important link. So it's not going where the old Burns lift was. It's actually going from the top of the snowflake lift up higher. So beginner and intermediate skiers will be able to progress from snowflake to Burns. And then Burns is going to connect to the Mountaineer lift. So you'll be able to enjoy all of that terrain without having to ride those two existing high-speed quads out of the base that are sometimes so busy down there at Deer Valley. Yeah, I when I heard about this one and started to think about it, at first it didn't really catch my attention, but the more I started to think, this is really going to be an amazing, amazing experience for someone who's just learning to ski. They want to kind of go out a little bit further on the mountain, and this gives them a great opportunity to hit some really fun terrain. Absolutely. And there's a new run there and they're they're grading it and making it a really nice step up from that that conveyor area at the bottom. Then you'll have some really nice terrain just above that to to ski. So some changes at Alta this year too. Yep. Alta is putting in their first six passenger chairlift. So they're replacing Sunnyside, which was, if folks remember, was a high speed triple, which was a very unique, uncommon lift. If you're worried about the old sunny side, it's actually going to live on in Montana at a ski area that bought it, but 
the new Sunnyside will be a six passenger lift replacing Sunnyside and Albion. So there'll be just one lift eventually out of that base area. Do you also try to track the lineage of lifts, like where they were born and where they've ended up? I do. So some of them have moved two, three, four times. As an example, Deer Valley's old homestake lift went to my home mountain in Washington, Crystal Mountain, where it's now operating again. So if lifts are are not that old and being removed, there's a good chance that they will end up at another ski area down the line. And then, of course, the Snowbird Tram. We had a, our opening episode on Last Chair this year. We hung that baby out over the Cirque and did a podcast with Jake and Dave, and that was a lot of fun. But that's, uh, that's a really iconic change. It is. I actually got to ride it this summer when just after the, the new blue was put on. Man, the glass floors are incredible. It's going to have a balcony in the summertime next summer, and the whole thing is glass. So the... The old tram was great. It's It was a classic, but at the time had come to make an upgrade there, and the new tram cars are just incredible. It's going to be a great experience, and that that both cabins will be online for the opening this year in early December. We, we've also got some installations at two areas that are not open to the public, Wasatch Peaks Ranch, which is a private resort uh, not all that far from Snow Basin. They're adding, what, a third lift? Their third chairlift. So they had two for their opening season last year. And they're just adding a third one, which I think is a beginner lift. That's one of those uh, skiers I have not been to because it's private, but would love to someday. And then uh, Utah Olympic Park, which is near and dear to me. It was the site of many of the events for the 2002 Olympic Winter Games. They actually, and, and folks, if you're coming to Park City this year, you need to go up to the park and and it's it's open only for training purposes. But you need to look at what they're doing with the West Peak expansion, but they're putting in a nice lift. They are. And one of the things people don't realize too is you can go up there and in in the summertime, you can hike and bike and uh, enjoy the Olympic Park. But for the winter, this new lift is going on a new peak off to the side of the current ski jumps. And uh, it's going to have night lighting, snowmaking, a high-speed quad. And uh, that will just be great for the athletes to train on. And it's, it's great for them not to have to go to another resort to get those runs in on bigger terrain. I remember back when I first moved to Utah in the late 80s, we took a walk of that area to look at the opportunities for putting Olympic events. And, you know, we were there to really look at where do we put a ski jump, but we all kept looking out to that that peak in the West, and it just has amazing terrain, about 1,000 feet of vertical, super nice steep pitch. And for race training, it's going to be just remarkable. And a high-speed lift, I mean, that's going to be laps like every three or four minutes. So you couldn't ask for much better for uh, for training for athletes. A brand new Doppelmeyer lift. It is Towers are in place and that lift will be ready and operating this winter. I know there's a number of things coming potentially in the 23 for the 23-24 season. Many of these are just in forest service approval, but can you highlight a few of the things we might look for next year? Sure. Solitude, they've said that they are going to be replacing the Eagle Express. It's a high-speed quad that was built by a company that's that didn't build very many lifts, and it was a very early iteration of the high-speed quad. So it's it's time has come to get upgraded. The new lift will be another high-speed quad. They haven't said yet which manufacturer, but uh, it will run roughly the same alignment, and uh, that'll be a great upgrade for reliability at Solitude. And then uh, next door at Brighton, 
I'm not sure the timeline exactly, but Brighton is seeking approval to build a new Crest Express. The high-speed quad there will likely be replaced by a larger lift, a six-person lift that uh, may have some more modern features like bubbles or seat heating. We'll have to wait and see, but the company that owns Brighton Boyne Resorts has really uh, made a big effort at their resorts across the country to introduce some of these technical features like heated seats and bubbles. When resorts are looking for lifts, who are the companies that they can shop? There are two primary companies. One of them is based right here in Utah, Doppelmayr USA. They build lifts all over the world, but their U.S. headquarters is right here. And then the other big one is called Leitner Palma of America, and they're also a European company with their headquarters in Colorado for the U.S. market. And they built, for example, Supreme at Alta, and they are building the new lift at Alta this summer. And they last year built the new lift at Snow Basin. Yeah, I was just going to give a shout out to that because that new Middle Bowl Express up at Snow Basin, another real transformational change. If you have skied Snow Basin before, undoubtedly you have skied Middle Bowl. It's a great area to ski. It was just painfully slow to get to the top. Now you are zipped right to the top with that new lift and it's really, really improved the ski experience. Yeah, in the past, uh, Doppelmayr had a huge portion of the Utah market, but Leitner Palma has really uh, made an effort to build a, a lot of the larger lifts in Utah these last few years. And uh, one of their subsidiaries is actually called Skytrack, which builds fixed grip lifts. And uh, Skytrack is also based in Salt Lake City. So some of these new fixed grip lifts going in in Utah will be Skytrack built right here in Salt Lake. When you buy a lift, what do you do to put it in? Does the manufacturer do that or are there companies that specialize in installations? There are three different ways a lift gets built. One is you, you pay the manufacturer to install it. That, I would say, is the most common. So either Doppelmayr or Skytrack or Leitner Palma would install their lift that they manufactured. Some ski areas hire a third-party contractor to install it. So like the Summit Express at Solitude was installed by a, a company that specializes in lift installation called Highlander. And then the third way is the ski area installs it themselves. So some ski resorts have enough manpower and knowledge to actually just buy the equipment and do all the work and the concrete and the foundations and put the lift together themselves. So that's a little bit of a, it's a lot of work to uh, install a lift, but some ski area owners and managers take pride in it and they, they do it themselves. You know, it, it really is an amazing thing to see, and I'm sure you've been involved with some installations before, but the use of helicopters to fly in the concrete forms and to fly in the towers, and it's just, uh, you just sit there in awe and watch this thing come down. Yeah, it's it's entertaining to me every every year. You hear skiers wondering if a lift's going to get finished, worried about, you know, not seeing a lot of progress. And what's going on during that time is all of the concrete, the civil work, the groundwork, and then once the helicopter shows up and the crane shows up, the lift goes up in a matter of hours and days. And then everybody's like, wow, it's almost finished. You know, the, the piece, though, that always mystified me, and it still mystifies me, is how do you bring the two ends of the cables together and secure them so they're tight and yet they're still smooth and going around the wheels? It's called a splice, and it's a very technical marriage of two ends of a, of a haul rope. There are special, specialists who 
whose only job is to go around the country and splice these ropes. So they they basically unwind both ends of a of a cable and weave the strands together, make some cuts, do some some pounding with hammers, and at the end you've got a nice smooth loop of rope and nobody unless you're a real technical guy like me, nobody really knows where that marriage even is. Are you able to, when you're riding a lift or watching a lift, are you pretty much able to figure out where the splice is? Yes. When you ride lifts enough, or if you're a lift mechanic, you know but just by feel where the splice is. There are typically six little bumps where that splice is. And then also uh, those marriages where the, the six ends of the rope get tucked in uh, are painted typically. So if you look closely on a chairlift, you'll see paint marks, six of them usually and you can tell that's where the splice is, but you have to really be paying attention. Are you able to undo the splice if you wanted to do any changes? Yes. Ropes typically have to get shortened. They stretch over time. So they're they're not technically ropes, they're cables, but we call them haul ropes in the industry. And they do stretch and over time, so they, they have to get shortened. So the splice gets undone, shortened, and then re-spliced. Speaking of ropes uh, stretching over time, Can you talk to us about different colors that towers are painted and why? Yeah, so in the past, lift towers were painted and they needed to be painted for rust corrosion protection. So different resorts like Deer Valley has their signature green. If they needed to be painted, it was a good kind of branding opportunity to paint whatever color the resort wanted. More modern lifts are typically galvanized. So you'll see on new lifts, they're typically a silvery color they're galvanized, and uh, those come that way from the factory, and then they don't have to be painted their entire life. The, the galvanization will just stay on there the whole the whole life of the lift. Is there is there heat shrinkage or or expansion on lift towers that impacts things as well? Yes. So again, if you're a lift rider that likes to pay attention to these things, if you look in sunny places, certain lifts like at Snowbird. In very sunny places, they'll be very deliberate about painting lift towers, either white or black, depending on whether they're going to be in the sun and which aspect the lift faces. So you want to have a white tower where it's very sun affected and not. you don't want to have the tower get too hot and warp. So if the sun's going to be, if a tower is south facing, you'll typically see it painted white so that the sun affects it less than a dark colored tower. Yeah, and folks, if you're out there skiing, Deer Valley is a good example because I know there are some situations there where the towers are a different color, but there is a reason for that. It's not just because somebody was trying to mix and match. Let's talk about Utah lifts, and you know, I'd, I'd love if you could maybe give us uh, some examples of what you consider to be iconic or real difference maker lifts here in Utah. Well, I've got to start with the king of Utah lifts, which is the Snowbird Tram. We talked about it a little bit, and I know you had... Dave Fields and his team on your podcast the first episode, but it's just the king. There's there's no faster way to get the vertical feet than the Snowbird Tram. You get on it, you're whisked up there, and you're at the top in no time. And uh, no other lift in Utah is quite as fast as the Snowbird Tram. Nearby, I would say an iconic lift for me as a technical guy is the Collins Lift at Alta. It was one of the first lifts in Utah to have a turn where you ride through a mid-station, and it re- it actually replaced two different lifts. It's technically very interesting because it's actually 
still two lifts and the chairs actually transfer between the two sections. So it has two motors, two haul ropes, two braking systems, and the lift chairs just transfer between the two ends every time. This goes back a few years, uh, and I can't remember when that lift was installed, but did you ski Alta when it was two lifts to the top on that side? I did, and I rode the old Germania. All right. It's a, it's a whole different experience there now. It is. It's one lift, effectively one lift when you're riding it to the ridge. And uh, yeah, it, it's very different from the old get off a lift, go to another lift, wait in line again, and then eventually get to the top. Cool. And I know skiers, when you're out there, you're going you're gonna to start to look. When you make that angle transfer, you're going to look up and you're going to see, oh, we are going to a completely different lift now. Yep. Interesting. How about another one? Park City, I would they have so many lifts there, but the, my favorite at Park City is the Quicksilver Gondola put in a few years ago by Vail Resorts when they connected canyons to Park City. Lifts like Quicksilver are really cool to me because they go through a bunch of different types of terrain. So on the canyon side, it's going through the trees and then it makes a turn on the ridge, goes down into Park City and over Thanes Canyon. That lift is way in the air, hundreds of feet above the ground. So there's really kind of a ride experience as you go up it. It's It's got different scenery along the way. Yeah. Living in Park City, that lift was really transformational. And my favorite ski day now is to start at Canyons, go and use Quicksilver, head on over to Park City, drop down to Main Street and take the bus back. It just, it kind of gives you that feel like you're in Europe and skiing village to village. It's a total game changer for that resort. And whether you're going from Park City to Canyons or Canyons to Park City, Quicksilver is, is so important to that whole operation. Yeah. Let's go up to Snow Basin and a lift that it's my favorite. And a lot of people just forget about it. John Paul is my favorite at Snow Basin. Chairlift, you know, people see the gondolas and they maybe go there first, but John Paul is actually one of the top chairlifts in the United States for vertical rise. It's it's 2,400 vertical feet in about eight minutes. It serves a huge amount of terrain, including the Olympic downhills, and also happens to have an amazing restaurant with great food at the top. It, it really is fun. And folks, it's, if, if you go to Snow Basin, you're naturally drawn to take uh, one of the two gondolas, the one right out of the main base. But if you kind of look over behind the administration building, there's another lift tucked there, and that's John Paul, and I really urge you to take that. It, and, and, you know, it, you're right on this, eight minutes serving all of that terrain. It's incredible. And a, a fun fact about that, too, is it's the third largest vertical chairlift in the United States, and the one and two are owned by the same company, Snow Basin's sister resort, Sun Valley. And so the, between Sun Valley and Snow Basin, they have the top three most vertical chairlifts in the United States. Yeah, it's remarkable. Got one more? One more. I have to throw in a fixed grip chairlift there. I know Utah has a lot of high-speed, newer, detachable lifts, but... At uh, Powder Mountain is my favorite Utah fixed grip lift, which is Paradise. It's a a fixed grip quad, services a huge amount of terrain, just like every lift at Powder Mountain, just a vast amount of terrain off each lift. And uh, Paradise in particular is a bunch of advanced terrain that I enjoy. The lift ride is a little slower. It's more of a classic lift, but it's, it's a great one. Yeah. This has been fascinating to take a look at some of these lifts, but let's kind of look out into the future. 
We had Katerina Schmitz from Doppelmeyer USA on last year, and she talked a little bit about this. But as you look into the future, what types of innovations do you see coming that are going to impact how we get up our mountains? So some of it's behind the scenes, technical aspects that we deal with as Lyft employees that the public may not see. The big one of those is called direct drive. So for example, Alta's new Sunnyside Lyft is going to have a direct drive and it's a it's a new kind of motor for ski lifts that directly operates on the bull wheel. So it takes out a whole lot of components of the drive system of a lift that could fail. So traditional ski lifts have a, a regular electric motor like you'd see in a factory, and then it connects to a gearbox and there are a bunch of different shafts. These newer lifts are much simpler. These efficient direct drives are quieter. They're less likely to break down and uh, they are more efficient on an energy perspective. And then from a, from a skier perspective, some of the changes coming down the line, you've seen a little bit at the canyons with the orange bubble, more comfortable chairs. So newer lifts, some places have heated seats, upholstered seats that are comfortable, bubbles, locking restraint bars that are safer for children. So all of those kind of innovations are coming down the line. So Wi-Fi coming? It's been toyed with, but but it's kind of becoming obsolete because now we a lot of ski resorts have have pretty good 5G cell service. So I'm not sure Wi-Fi will be necessary, but it has been done in Europe and we'll see if that makes its way over here. I kind of just mentioned it as a crazy suggestion, but you are right. I mean, the coverage at, at ski resorts on your phones is much better. And I think resorts have really used that to their advantage. Yes, and on that front, um, another thing that's being toyed with in Europe and probably going to come over here is uh, having ski lift stations monitored remotely through cloud technology, so the cameras, motion sensors. So there will be a human watching the lift, but they may not be standing there at the lifts in a jacket. They may be in, a, in an office with, at a computer watching cameras and sensors. So when I started skiing, double chairlifts, fixed grip, that was pretty much de rigueur. And then it kind of went up to triples. Then it went up to quads. Then it went up to detachables. A few years ago, we saw the six packs come in at Park City Mountain and a few other places. Now we've got talk of eight packs coming in. Where does the seat arrangement, where's that going on chairlifts? I think eight is probably the limit as far as how many skiers you can line up in a row and thank have you them, for that, by the way, and have them sit down and then be able to get off and and not crash. I think where where you're talking about larger cabins or larger numbers of people on one carrier, maybe gondolas, there's more room for going from eight person to ten or twelve. The, that could be pretty efficient because people generally know how to how to crowd into something when they're walking better than when they're on skis. But I don't think you'll see 10 or 12 or 14 lined up sideways on a chairlift. Yeah, and I think, you know, and actually you're talking to Katarina and some of the resort operators, one of the big things in looking at what you're going to do for a chairlift is how is the loading experience? I mean, for those of us who ski and snowboard, we don't think about that. We know how to use a chairlift. But for most people getting into our sport, this is a really new and daunting experience. So that's a big part of how these the resorts set up their lifts. Absolutely. I didn't mention when we talked about technology these loading conveyors, which a few Utah resorts have gone to, but uh, you stay standing when you're getting on the chairlift, but the, the floor is moving, so you're not actually standing on snow. You're standing on a on a conveyor belt that, that moves you to the load area. 
that can add efficiency. The cool thing about those is they can also be raised up. So a child, if they're not very tall and the lift operator sees that they may need some help, the whole platform can raise up just a little bit to make it easier to load. Uh, and then gondolas are also a big boon for for loading efficiency because people generally are are good at walking. And uh, so I think you'll see more gondolas going in in beginner areas because uh, they are efficient and comfortable for beginner skiers. Good. A lot of cool stuff on the horizon. Absolutely. I love following the lift, in it, lift industry because things are always changing. They're always introducing new technology and uh, ski resorts are always looking to to buy that new technology. Well, Peter, thanks for sharing all of your knowledge and insights and telling us a little bit about your journey. We're going to close out this episode of Last Chair with Fresh Tracks, a series of questions for you. And we've probably talked a little bit about this already, but what's the most bizarre lift that you've ever encountered across the 2,381 that you went out and visited? I would say there's a chairlift up in Alaska that actually uses wooden towers. So most lifts these days are all metal, steel, aluminum. There's a chairlift up in Alaska that's made with wooden towers. It's unlike any other chairlift I've seen in the country. You know, it, it's it's funny, you know, you look at all the old mining installations around Deer Valley and Park City Mountain, as an example, where you can still see some of the old towers. I think those are even metal. So why did they, do you know why they went with wood? Probably a surplus of trees nearby and it's hard to get things around into Alaska and that's what they had. So they went with what they, what they knew. You've had an opportunity to ski all over the country. Now you're starting to explore up in Canada. Do you have a favorite Utah ski run? I would say off the Super Condor at the canyons, Apex Ridge checks some boxes for me because it it goes next to a lift, under a lift, and is just a great cruiser. Yeah, it really is. And folks, if you don't know that one, it's that if you look up at the mountain as far skiers right at canyons, and it is a great run. What's the most futuristic lift that you expect to see in your lifetime? Ooh, probably... It will probably be in a city rather than a ski resort. These gondolas are really starting to become public transportation in South America, in Europe. So I think we'll see in a U.S. city at some point a very futuristic lift that is automated with very efficient loading features and uh, connects neighborhoods rather than ski trails. You know, it's interesting. Do you? I'm going to go up to Ogden because Ogden actually had talked about a lift somewhat like that from downtown up to Mount Ogden. Was that maybe before your time or are you familiar with that discussion? I'm familiar. I think they were maybe just a little bit early on the urban lift front. It's The technology has really taken off since then in terms of the amount of time needed to build a lift in an urban setting and the efficiency of that lift. So just recently in the last week, Mexico City announced that they're going to build another new Doppelmayr lift and it's it's going to connect like six different neighborhoods and it's going to be built in 15 months. So compared to light rail or buses, gondolas can be really efficient and the technology has come a long way in just a few years. In the Mexico City installation, is Doppelmayr going with, sim that, was it the 3S gondola the, similar to what is used up at Whistler? Do you know? It's going to be a regular monocable gondola, we call them, so like you'd see it at Park City, but the cabins will be very close together. They'll hold 10 people each, and uh, the line is going to move very quickly, so it will be able to move. They're talking about being able to move 
over 100,000 people a day Cool on a gondola. I just love those. You get to ski a lot, groomers, glades, bumps, or powder? Got to go with powder. Almost everybody does. Every once in a while, I'm, I'm, I actually will go with groomer, but uh, uh, any memorable powder days here in Utah? My first day I ever skied in Utah was a, a ski trip to Alta. We stayed up at Alta, went out in the morning, powder everywhere, and I think the road was closed. So it was one of those days you hear about when nobody's there. Weekday, powder, amazing. Nothing like a good inner lodge day. Yeah. Exactly. Do you have a favorite High West whiskey? I have not tried any, but I talked to a coworker yesterday because I knew I would get asked that question. And he said, without hesitation, double rye. Double rye. Okay. Very good. Well, we'll on one of your trips this winter, we'll get you introduced. Finally, in just one word, what does this whole ski lift adventure meant to you in one word? Freedom. Freedom. Love it. Peter Landsman, Lift Blog, thanks for sharing your adventures and for all you do to bring the word of skiing to so many people around the world. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Since we recorded this earlier in October, Peter has been flying around the U.S. and Canada posting photos of innovative lifts, old and new, to his Twitter and Instagram channels. You can follow him at LiftBlog. He has some fun channels that will really get you motivated for the season ahead. And before we go, I want to welcome a new episode sponsor to Last Chair. If you're trying to find a base location for your adventure to Park City this winter, check out the Park City Peaks Hotel. There are many reasons to choose Park City Peaks. Let's start with location, offering easy bus or shuttle access to the resorts and a host of cool local restaurants in walking distance. Park City Peaks has a mid-century design aesthetic to provide an at-home vibe as an independent modern mountain hotel. The centerpiece of Park City Peaks is the Versante Hearth and Bar, known for handcrafted wood-fired pizzas and street breads, pastas, and much, much more. I consider it to be one of Park City's best hotel bars, blending locals and visitors together. At Park City Peaks, you'll find a breakfast buffet, complimentary yoga every Thursday, hot cocoa and cookies every afternoon, hot tubs, ice skating, and the list goes on. Make Park City Peaks your choice this winter. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our Ski Adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. We're well underway on what looks like a great season of insightful episodes of Last Chair. Coming up soon, we'll talk about the Great Salt Lake and we'll learn what steps are being taken to preserve it for the future. We'll explore the uniqueness of the old mining town of Park City with 10,000 acres of skiing across two separate world-class resorts. If you missed it, go back and check out our Season 4 debut episode on the new Snowbird Tram and also listen in on equipment industry leader Nick Sargent as he talks about the Utah-based Snow Sports Industries America. If you like the Ski Utah Last Chair podcast, share it with a friend and also leave us a review. And make sure to subscribe so you can get every episode delivered direct to you. Thank you for joining us on Last Chair. And to close us out, let's welcome our friends Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Oh!